You're listening to season five of Technically 200, a podcast featuring the stories of Black and Latina women breaking barriers in STEM fields, all while paving the way for the next generation. Tune in weekly to hear from our amazing guests to learn more about STEM fields, how they've navigated these fields as women of color, and about their many contributions to the overall world of STEM. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Carla Franklin, Senior Program Manager, Corporate Strategy at Amazon. Hi, Carla. How are you? I'm well. How are you, Amber? Doing great. I'm so excited to have you on our podcast today to talk a little bit about um, Carlin Solutions and all the amazing work that you're doing, all the blogging about technology, and just to know more about you. Well, I'm excited to be here, thrilled to talk about it, uh, and thrilled to give my perspective as a Black woman who has been in tech uh, from full stack development to program management to strat corporate strategy for 20 some years. So yeah, thank you for having me. So can you just tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. Uh, well, officially, um, my, I guess my, my function, my role is business transformation and strategic change um, through digital technology. Uh, but um, specifically, uh, I use my a professional toolkit, which is heavily, you know, way towards the tech field, um, but also includes uh, understanding of strategy, um, understanding of financial modeling, economic modeling. Those are things I picked up in business school uh, to help businesses uh, make strategic changes and um, increase profits, um, improve how they serve customers and stay cutting edge. And from the tech angle, just my my background, and I'll I'll tell you a little bit more about how how I started. I actually um, went to undergrad at Duke University and uh, thought I was going to be a doctor, and so I majored in biology. Going to a college like uh, Duke or a university like Duke was very eye opening. It was uh, uh, in some ways uh, just a great life-changing experience uh, uh, because I was thrust into this elitist world. Um, and I got to experience all that that meant. Um, and it also thrust me into uh, looking at careers that I had never been exposed to. Investment banking, management consulting, corporate strategy, um, marketing, right? Strategic marketing, PR. My classmates from Duke came in, um, you know, they matriculated from some of the top boarding schools and private schools in the U.S. Um, and here I am, a public school kid from Central North Carolina. Um, now, what and what I will say was I was just as smart as them, um, and I say this without arrogance, if not smarter. Um, but they had a better preparation than I did because of right. their schooling. Um, and so, you know, that that's something that I, you know quickly realized and I had to adjust. And um, I would say one of my superpowers and strengths is learning how to learn. And that that um, also lends itself well to um, technology and um, strategy. Uh, learning how to learn, figuring out how to figure things out. And so I took a lot of, of course, biology classes, um, but I was forced to take a computer science class uh, because I had accepted an Air Force ROTC scholarship my freshman year. Mm. And they required me, it, it was, as a requirement, um, I was told that I had to ma major in computer science. Well, um, I 
did, I decided I, you know, and after doing, cause I had resisted certain things in, in going to school, I had not been exposed to email and this was the nineties, right? Late nineties or mid, mid to late nineties. A lot of my classmates had already seen email. And when I tell you like, it's like first generation email, and I know we're going to talk about, um, you know, web 3.0 or web three, but we're talking about web 1.0 static. <laughs> I mean, like, Static web pages, like basic telnet email. I know you don't know anything about that. That's the type of email <laughs> we were using at Duke, but I resisted it. And so I resisted, te- resisted technology and email until I was forced to take some computer science classes, like uh, in like my second semester of my freshman year. And I think I took some over the summer and, and, and summer, like uh, in the summer term. And I really liked it. It was hard. It was hard. Um, it was a different mental shift, but I really liked it. Um, funny enough, we had had, again, we had email accounts um, in tw- like 2000, what, I'm sorry, 19, <laughs> 94, 95, but I never checked my email because I just thought, what is this? Why am I like, I could just call somebody, right? And so after graduating from Duke, um, I just thought, okay, well, I could go to medical school, right? I can, you know, take some time off, um, study for the MCATs. Um, and I said, you know what, I think, you know, I, I thought about where I was just in terms of uh, my own development. I, yeah, I said, you know what, that's the right thing for me, but I got to work <laughs> in the meantime. Right. And so I, you know, I kept hearing about this consulting thing, right? Like, you know, I learned about it at Duke and, um, you know, consulting is basically um, when people develop an expertise of something, uh, whether it's, um, you know, kind of a focus skilled or a uh, generalist skill set, you know, within financial services or business um, strategy or operations uh, or technology. Uh, And they go in and they help businesses with, you know, strategic challenges. And so I had this coding background. I had taken a lot of um, uh, uh, language called C++ in college. Um, And I was teaching myself Java at the time, which was actually much easier than C++. And I really enjoyed learning it. Um, And so I, um, I interviewed and uh, got a job with um, a consulting firm called Deloitte Consulting uh, out, mm. of, out of Duke uh, as an IT consultant. Uh, and when I tell you I knew enough Java and, and SQL to get through the interview, um, uh, but, and I got through the interview and I got the job, but I realized I'm really going to have to ramp up, right? So every night I would go home and I would write programs. I had my computer, my, it was a mini tower, right? <laughs> my computer. And I would just go home and I would write code in Java and I would write code in, um, and I would write SQL, right? I was the only person on my team who, who got, I, or I was the first person on my team to get Java certified. I was the youngest in the first. And so I got certified and then I was a hot commodity. Um, I started getting calls from recruiters because of course I up- updated my resume and, you know, put, put my feelers out there. Um, <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, and got approached by IBM. Uh, and oh, wow. so, yeah, um, which was, I would say like the hot comp, it was, you know, I, I I don't think people hear as much about IBM nowadays, but before Microsoft, before, mm-hmm. you know, Yahoo and Google, you know, IBM was a major player. So it was a big deal um, to go work at IBM. Uh, and uh, I 
I stayed there for about eight years uh, and just really developed as a programmer, um, joined their business consulting service division, um, developed as a uh, a consultant, a strategist, a manager, um, and learned all kind of other skills. And so that's how my my, uh, career evolved. I went to business school. Um, later came out of business school, did some more strategic consulting, um, worked for a startup and then started my own company, Carlin Solutions, uh, in 2010, 2011. Um, I became a certified woman-owned minority company, uh, and was able to, uh, get contracts with some major corporations, um, and also major government agencies. So I've worked with corporations that include Estee Lauder and Weight Watchers and um, Pfizer, um, public entities, uh, including the MTA of New York and New Jersey Mm -hmm. uh, and the Port Authority, Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. I worked on a great, like an amazing project with the airport. So if anyone's flown out of JFK, LaGuardia or Newark, you probably have passed by or interacted with a tool, if you, especially if you're booking ground transportation, uh, that I was involved or my company, Carlin Solutions, was involved in, in developing and rolling out. So um, I've had technology has allowed me to have an amazing career. And looking back, um, no regrets for not going to medical school. <laughs> no regrets um so much respect to doctors though so much oh, yeah. respect to doctors carla has over 19 years of experience at top management consulting firms including her own carlin solutions she goes into depth about how she's seen a shift in trend to living life virtually and how it relates to the evolution of the web from web 2.0 to web 3 if we're talking about let's say industry in terms of retail, right? Retail sales, which is kind of where I am now. Um, I mean, there are many hot trends. I mean, I think COVID has, you know, COVID thrust us into um, being more uh, virtual minded, right? Uh, And, you know, before COVID, who would have thought that so many people could work remotely from home? I would say that's one of the hot trends um, is virtual working. Um, another hot trend is, um, also just kind of being able to not, not having go to a brick and mortar store, right? I mean, and being able to order what you want. And I think for generationally, um, younger generations and cohorts have just, I mean, you guys are growing up like that, or you guys are, are used to that, not having to go or not even necessarily wanting to go into a store and try clothing on, um, right. not having to go to the grocery store and, you know, squeeze the, you know, the bananas to make sure they're soft, but, you know, or (laughs) make sure you're getting the type of bread you want. You just go and you look at an online marketplace and select what you want and have it delivered, um, sometimes within two hours. Um, and so kind of that, that virtual way of living. Uh, and so, you know, which is part of, um, you know, kind of the transition from, web 2.0 to web 3.0 um the iteration of the you know evolution of of the internet the the hot trends now are really about living life virtually i mean hence the metaverse that facebook is is launching 
Um, oh yeah. <laughs> Mark, Mark Zuckerberg's vision is, you know, it's very futuristic, but I think we're really transitioning into that type of life where everything is remote, right? Every, we can, we can either interact personally or we can interact through technology. You want to see a doctor? Well, who would have thought 10 years ago, it would become, I mean, it's starting to become the norm that you can do tele, tele visits online. I don't have to go to a doctor's office. I could be in rural, rural Utah or rural North Carolina and see a doctor that is um, based out of Chapel Hill, North Carolina, or uh, New York, New York, um, and have them evaluate me for certain things. So I would say that the metaverse really is not far out there. It is where we are now and where we are sliding. That's crazy. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I mean, we're there, <laughs> we're, we're sliding there, right? Um, yeah. You, you buy things, like I said, you're, you're, we're shopping online. We're having our medi medical care uh, facilitated through online means. We are getting our food online. Um, we are learning online, right? Online universities, uh, look at COVID again, COVID thrusts us, I think, into this new world where we are really connected to technology. And we're really going to have to, from an ethical standpoint and social standpoint, determine what that means. So Arlen, and I covered a lot in this interview and I do mean a lot. However, I thought it was very important to share her knowledge about how Web3 is diversifying banking and changing banking for the unbanked. Mm -hmm. When we think of Web 1.0, we're thinking of like the very static internet, right? The, um, the, um, the just kind of that raw HTML, being able to search for different topics and news and um, just basic things, right? right? Not kind of interactive where we're purchasing or doing commerce or really socializing. Web 2.0 was that is the next, I, we're in the midst of Web 2.0, maybe on the latter edge of it. And it is really, you know, kind of focused on more kind of dynamic interaction with the internet and, and technology. So that includes, you know, forums and social media pages and blogs and, and wikis and, and e-commerce, right? A bit of, you know, a bit of e-commerce, right? But um, Web 3.0 really is supposed to be the new iteration of the internet that deals with, um, that incorporates blockchain technology. So um, beyond e-commerce, which still involves physical, I mean, electronic, the electronic translation of our physical currency, um, Web 3.0 deals more with true electronic currency and commerce um, through blockchain technology. Uh, now, I'm not a blockchain or cryptocurrency expert, and I, we talked about that before the interview. Uh, there are lots of people out there that are. Um, I think that some of this stuff is a bubble. That's just my own personal opinion, right? Mm -hmm. this, um, Bitcoin and, and, and things of that nature. But, but But Bitcoin itself is just a cryptocurrency based on blockchain technology. Blockchain technology is not going away. Blockchain technology, it really is kind of financial ledger um, uh, algorithms and financial ledger logic um, to bring finance, banking, um, and, and commerce fully into the realm of the internet and technology. Um, when you're buying things online, you're still working in physical dollars, right? You still have to have those dollars uh, in an account somewhere. 
blockchain technology and and cryptocurrency is and again i'm not an expert on this but it is it is a different type of currency it is a different type of logic um, than we're accustomed to so who knows where that's going but that is really the root of of web 3.0 is really moving from not just how we socialize and shop but how we actually earn money and, and, you know, um, um, forge value in, in items and in currency. Uh, and so again, I'm not the best person to talk to about, about that, but what I will say is, um, all of the major companies are moving in this direction. A lot of the major banks, uh, uh, especially based out of New York and London are coming up with their own blockchain, uh, um, logic and blockchain offerings to customers um, and their own form of cryptocurrency. It's not necessarily Bitcoin, which is like, you know, like the, the, the most popular one, but what they are doing is they're, they're building infrastructure to be able to, for, for their customers and who are, whether they're individuals or other businesses to be able to do business using cryptocurrency. I think that that is really interesting really cutting edge and it'll be interesting to see where we go with that uh right now um you know our our dollar is no longer backed by gold it's <laughs> it's yeah. backed by consumer sentiment and you know what does that mean and you know then we print more money and it drives up inflation so then we have to drive up interest rates well what you know who knows what the impact of you know blockchain and and, and cryptocurrency will be if we come up with this new type of currency that dominates the US dollar or the the pound the 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 euro yeah i don't know and that's web 3.0 <laughs> yeah and i feel like you know kind of the conversation you were having before when i asked you know what are the hottest trends in your industry and you said pretty much just moving our entire lives into more of a uh, technological online space i feel like yep. you can kind of relate that to what's going on with web 3 like you said web 2.0 is just how do we interact with each other and socialize? But now it seems like web point or web three is more like, how do we live yep. online? I mean, you know, we're, we're moving around away from banks. What is it? I mean, we are literally moving away from banks. Um, Apple pay, we have Apple pay, um, Amazon, um, Google wallet, um, and before those those companies, I mean, Elon Musk, isn't that how he kind of built himself off of um, PayPal, wasn't it? Right. PayPal and eBay. And yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, but PayPal was like the first, right? We also have, I mean, and I'm forgetting Cash App and some of these other players that are literally, I mean, in some ways it's, 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 it's exciting because it's democratizing um, finance and how people are able to do business. The people who are unbanked because they're poor, because they have bad credit, because of whatever circumstance can have a cash app account, right? You don't have to have a credit check for that. You can have a PayPal account. You can have a, um, you know, a, uh, uh, what I said, Cazelle. I mean, there are all these services that are available to folks that uh, were not available before. Um, there is um, uh, buy now, pay later, right? A lot of the 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 you know online retailers are offering that buy now, pay later. It's like 
it's not even layaway. I mean, it's, it's, it's a form of credit. But again, if you're unbanked, um, you the, the, an opportunity, you have still have an opportunity to purchase things that you might want or need. Um, what does that mean for the banks, right? They've got to, right. they've got to keep up. Um, they've got to, you know, do business with some of these platforms that are ex- essentially taking their market share. Um, you can invest on your own now, right? Like you can, uh, it, E-Trade was one of the first, I have an E-Trade account, but you have all these other players that have popped off. Uh, popped up in the investment world, you no longer have to go to uh, uh, Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley. And quite frankly, a lot of the young people, even young wealthy people, aren't. They're, you know, the private wealth industry is getting hit hard by online uh, finance and, and commerce because people want to do you know more self-service. They don't want to just hand their money over to a wealth manager or financial advisor to invest on their own. They want to they want to do it themselves. And so um, we're literally we often talk about um, changes in you know technology and commerce. You know, for example, that we're part of 2.0, putting certain businesses, um, certain um, industries out of business. So as things change and as things evolve, you're I think we're going to see certain big players or certain, you know, certain players that we thought were just these kind of bulge bracket banks or, or whatever um, players disappearing or morphing or shifting in ways that we can't even predict. Um, I can imagine a future in the next 10 years where a lot of the big banks are really struggling if they don't move towards um blockchain, cryptocurrency, and some of these online or, excuse me, digital um, digital currency exchange methods. That, and let me also tie that back to what we were talking about before and what, like, you know, e- even getting paid, right? There are a lot of companies now, you know, uh, we talk about flexible labor force and working from home. Um, there are people who want to get paid same day, right? right. There are people who want to get paid weekly. Well, there are companies who not only, um, you know, are emerging through this gig economy, allowing people to work flexibly, but also allowing people to get paid flexibly. So you don't have to wait two weeks or a month in some cases to get your paycheck, right? Yeah, you can get paid same day. Right. Oh. Through your cash app or Zelle account. It's and th- again, this is evolving. This is an evolving thing. Well, if ploy- employers can accommodate that through the new technology um, and it doesn't hurt their bottom line or their ca- cash flow position, why not? Right. right. What does this mean for like these um, these uh, lenders? Uh, what do you call these? Uh, uh, the it, Potentially, that could put the payday lenders out of out of business because they which which and they're very. Um, a lot of them are very uh, mercenary and um, kind of focused on taking advantage of poor communities, minority communities. So that's another disruption to the financial industry, part, a part of the financial industry uh, that isn't always a positive one. But it'll be interesting, again, to see what happens in the next 10 years. And um, that is a direct, uh, you know, our, as we move into Web 3.0, that's going to be a direct part of that, that move, that transition. Carla shared a lot with us about Web3 and banking, but her knowledge about the web stretches far beyond that. In a previous episode, we heard about how Web3 gives users more data privacy. I wanted to give listeners the chance to hear Carla's personal experience with being thrust into the world of cybersecurity during the emergence of Web2.0 and her work with cybersecurity as the internet continuously evolves. So um, in 2010, um, 
I got thrust into the world of not necessarily online security, but more um, cyber safety um, after I had an incident with someone who stalked me uh, and harassed me. And I, you know, had to basically prove that this person was doing it, uh, make a case that this was a crime um, and uh, move forward to protect myself uh, with the order of protection. Uh, And so, uh, gosh, back in 2010, uh, there was no Me Too movement. Uh, But that being said, uh, the internet um, now is the wild, wild west. It was even more so back then. Um, and this is the emergence of Web 2.0, right? With social media and platforms and Facebook. And, um, you know, we had Black, I think Black Planet back then. I, I don't know <laughs> if you know, but that is. And um, there was another another one that uh, MySpace, oh my gosh, MySpace, which was starting to die <laughs> Yeah, back then. But again, evolution. And so, but what it also meant was that, you know, people were free to do a lot. Um, and um, a lot of good stuff and a lot of bad stuff. And I found myself at the um, like nexus of a, of a of a you know kind of a harassment issue where someone thought that they could post things lies about me, um, defame me online, you know, do other things just because you know they were upset. And so what um, this you know. Um, this incident of stalking and harassment um, caused me to do is to really learn more about the law, learn more about the uh, loopholes um, in internet law, um, and try to help work to close some of those loopholes. Um, at the time, I was in New York State uh, and living in Brooklyn, um, and uh, you know, I decided to uh, pursue an order of protection against this person that was stalking me and had to get evidence in order to get protection. So I ended up filing something similar, I guess like a subpoena, but it was it's a, it was a court action, order to show cause. Um, and it was really discovery uh, information. It was a request, a legal request for information. Um, I was forced to do this by an internet company who would not turn over information that would lead me to who, like to identify who my stalker was to the um to the police and to the courts that's no longer an issue i think there you know a lot of the companies are much more willing to help people who feel victimized in that way um but back then i just couldn't get the information the police were hesitant because they didn't know is this a real crime of course it was is it not this is different this is online we don't want to deal with it uh, but i move forward on my own uh and i got the information uh but in getting the information my case made news. And I want to say I never got paid a dime (laughs) for any of this. Um, It was always about the information um, to keep myself safe. But yeah, that's how it was back then. And so I just kept pursuing, I just kept moving forward, right? And I found allies, one of whom was a man, uh, a state senator at the time named Eric Adams, um, who is now the mayor of New York. So I was, um, you know, Senator Adams, I was introduced to him by a wonderful woman who's a, a, 
a mutual friend of another friend uh, who's a lobbyist. I had to give a couple of interviews about my case. Uh, didn't understand why it was breaking news, but it was, um, you know, the audacity of a woman, a Black woman, right, especially to feel like she could, um, you know, just fight against someone who was saying mean things online. Well, no, right? Like, right. Uh, I was getting defamed, right? I was, it was hurting my opportunity to, to get jobs. Um, and what I found through my journey was that I was not the only person who had to deal with this. So um, in any case, uh, my work with cyber harassment and cybersecurity really was around protecting individuals online um, as the internet evolves. And I'm, I'm very proud of that. That's, that's amazing. And thank you so much for sharing that story. I didn't know personally that it related uh, to you. But um, I think when you do work that uh, kind of hits home, it makes you that much more involved and go that much harder behind it. So that's amazing to hear. And so, um, you know, you've spoken about women's empowerment. You've had uh, the opportunity to when it comes to technology. And so I, I wanted to kind of throw it up to you. What have you observed are the best ways to bridge that diversity divide in technology? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I have, I actually do have very strong opinions about this. Um, and I, um, you know, I, I, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of popular movements now, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, um, you know, things that are well-meaning, uh, in order, like, that were, you know, kind of spun off to move the needle, um, and make technology more diverse. But, um, I think truly what works is number one, um, having girls. And I also want to talk about minority boys, like black men and and Hispanic men, but I know that this podcast uh, is focused on, on women. So I, I will center it there, but, um, but, but having visible role models, uh, for all of them to see, um, Girls can even learn from men who are engineers and technologists, but seeing someone that looks like them who's doing what they do. Mm -hmm. So um, I would say exposure to careers is number one, but number two, um, direct intervention at um, at an early age. We can't just reach out to students once they hit high school. We need to kind of start with um, technology the right way um, in elementary school, but certainly in middle, middle school, right? Middle school when they're around 11 or 12 and they're really starting to form, formulate, you know, kind of what a, a sense of self <laughs> outside of their family and parents. They're moving from childhood to teenage years and young adulthood. Um, I think that's the right age and exposing them to real careers, not just putting a, a tablet or a computer in front of them because, you know, they're going to play. So actually, exposing them to careers, exposing them to the technology, but actually exposing them to the right type of technology. Don't just give them a video game. Don't just give them a tablet. Don't just give them a phone, right? Make sure they're using it in the right way. And then lastly, I would say, and again, this is my opinion and my belief as someone who's been working um, in technology for, for decades. Um, I think we, the, the focus with diversity, equity, and inclusion needs to be actually hiring people who do the work, not just hiring um, faces of diversity, equity, and inclusion to be talking heads. And I'm going to say that, and I'm going to stand 10 toes down on that. <laughs> I see companies jumping on board, bandwagons, Black Lives Matter. We have a VP of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And when you really look, they're not moving the needle. 
there right. it's just PR, right? So when I see you know, companies donating to Black Lives Matter, when I see companies carving out budget for, um, you know, a, a whole team on DEI, I think, why don't you just hire a bunch of Black lawyers? Why don't you just hire some Black engineers? I know Black people coming out of North Carolina A&T or NC, uh, NC State, which is not HBCU, or Howard or Morehouse, who are, who are in the tech field, right? Who are, who are majoring... In, in technology, why aren't you just carving out budget to have your recruiting team go down and just pull them? If you really want to diversify um, your, your tech, uh, excuse me, diver uh, add diversity to kind of your tech team or within technology, just hire the people that are doing the work, right? Yeah. Um, stop. I, I honestly, I just think a lot of what companies do is virtue signaling. You need to actually hire some Black engineers if Black lives matter. And, and they, that's doable. That's doable. And Absolutely. so I think that's the real barrier, right? Getting through those biases with the, the companies and the hiring managers. Um, it's not just enough to do diversity training. Um, it's not just enough to donate to causes. It's, it's not just enough to create a team around diversity when you don't empower them to actually move the needle. Um, make your hiring managers hire people who actually do the work. So that's, that's to me, the biggest opportunity. But the other opportunity is, is exposing kids early. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Carla, thank you so much for giving us a little bit more background on Web3, even though, you know, you said you're not an expert. I feel like I've still learned a lot. So good. thank you good. so much. Uh, but also thank you so much for sharing your story. This was really, really inspirational. You're really doing um, amazing work and uh, just such an inspiration. I can't wait for our girls to hear this episode. Wonderful. Wonderful. And, you know, feel free, anyone to uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, I will be vamp revamping my website, but um, <laughs> you can also reach out to me via CarlaFranklin.com if you have any questions or, you know, just want some additional insight. But no, thank you for having me, Amber. It was a, it was a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Technically 200. Don't forget to subscribe and visit us at Technically200.com. See you at our next episode.